Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you for joining us again this week on the program and for watching every week. As you know, we have been in a series uh, that we are teaching on the book of Romans, and we plan to do a chapter by chapter a study of the book of Romans. And so uh, I trust you've been blessed by that. We are going to start today uh, talking about Romans 6 and why Christian behavior is important under grace. And I think you're going to be blessed by it. And uh, uh, I really am excited about teaching uh, this book of Romans. It's really almost an inexhaustible book again, but uh, the, the benefit that I have with television that I don't have on the road is I've got the benefit of time to be able to unpack chapter by chapter and sometimes almost verse by verse some very powerful things that I think need to be said concerning the new covenant, the gospel of grace, and the kingdom of God. If you uh, have just turned in for the first time, we are now beginning chapter 6 once again, and uh, if you've missed any of these, I, I encourage you at least for the time being to be able to go back to our YouTube channel and watch them. Uh, you can watch them on YouTube. You can also hear the audio portions of this on our podcast, and the RSS feed for your Android device is also available. So there's a lot of ways that you can stream this and watch it at your leisure and when you have the time. The very easiest way to do it is to go to my website at lynnhiles.com, and you'll see that address on the screen. In the upper right-hand corner, there are icons of the YouTube and of the Android-looking uh, thing and the podcast that will take you to a direct link of it. We really encourage you to go subscribe to these channels. They are absolutely free, and uh, you are going to be blessed by them. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, if you would like to sow a seed into the ministry to help us to continue to be able to offer them for free, uh, there is a place where you can give while you're at the website there. So uh, why don't you do that today? And I think you'll be blessed by it. We're going to start today in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. But in the prelude to it, I want to uh, review just a little bit of how, you know, in the, uh, in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, as we ended it, last week in the series on Romans 5. We are drawing a lot of this from the Message Bible translation because it makes it so much clearer and easy to understand. And I do realize that the Message Bible is not actually a just a verse-by-verse, uh, word-by-word translation, but it's more of a transliteration, and it is a... Uh, but it helps in the understanding because it was written in the common language of the people that would may have perhaps seen it like that in the day. But in Romans, the fifth chapter, it says this, and I love this is one of my favorite verses in Romans. It says, here it is in a nutshell. One man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life, a life that goes on and on and on. In other words, the gospel and the point of the gospel and even the point of Christian behavior is not so much about what it takes to make it to heaven. It's about what it takes to get heaven to make it to earth, so to speak, or to bring heaven into your reality. 
to literally be a part of God's new creation project. And so we're going to talk a lot about that in this next segment because you see, God is interested. You've heard me probably say this many times on this program. God is interested in dealing with sin, even under grace and in the new covenant, but not because of what it does to Him, but because of what it does to us and how it affects our life and how it makes us aliens in our own mind and how even the response of Adam, the moment he got the knowledge of good and evil, his response was to run from God rather than to run to God. And uh, his response was, I'm naked, I'm ashamed, and I need to hide. And I think that's the worst thing that can happen to someone when they fall into sin is that they say, I'm naked, I'm ashamed, I need to hide. What they need to do is instead of running from God, run right straight to Him and find that He is an ever-present help in the time of need and has been touched with all of the feelings of your infirmities. And if you remember back, and by way of review, when we were dealing with Romans 1 and 2, especially the diagnosis section of this uh, book of Romans, we talked about how he indicts everything and everybody and the sin that he deals with there. One of the things that he finally does is he simply says, I'm going to turn them over to do those things which are not convenient. And the judgment that came was not necessarily that God was just out to get you, but it's the repercussions of you reaping the very things that you've sown. You know, uh, the Scripture tells us, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of different ways to look into those Scriptures, but the principle of sowing and reaping still is valid, no matter what covenant you are under, is that, you know, we use that, try to sometimes just talk about, you know, uh, finances or something like that. But I do believe that if you sow hate, you're going to reap hate. If you sow division, you're going to reap division. If you sow, uh, you know, into the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And I know there's a lot of different ways to view that, but in the, the reality of it is, is that there are principles here that are in motion, that we blame God for, that are not necessarily God doing anything to us, but our own sin reproving us, as Jeremiah the prophet said, and our own iniquity judging us. And so, you know, as, let, let, me, let me go back and see if I can pull that up in, in, the, in the fifth chapter of Romans, and we'll come back here and get into the sixth chapter as we go down through this. And we're going to talk about some things that really have been absolutely fresh in my spirit in the last couple of weeks, even as I've traveled, I've shared uh, all over the country on this particular theme, and uh, and I really feel like it's an important, you know, I think it's really an important part of what we're sharing right now. But let me think, let me see here, the verse that we're after is, let me see, it is in verse 18 and 19, it says, here it is in a nutshell, just as one person did it wrong, and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right, and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble. See, a lot of people are thrilled. I have thrilled a many a crowd by talking about the efficacy and the power and the extent of the work of Christ, and that He took our judgment, He bore our sins on the tree, and that uh, that has been completely paid for, and that you are no longer in trouble. I think that is a that is something to shout about and something to be thrilled about. Uh, one man, he, and he he reduces it to the whole story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in, and how Christ got us out of it. 
And I would say very clearly that what Jesus did was far more powerful than what Adam did. And so uh, one person did it right and got, and got us out of it. But more, this is what I'm after in this segment because we're moving from the diagnosis to the deliverance section of the book of Romans. Because it's one thing to not be in trouble. A lot of people are, are happy they're not in trouble. And we have really reduced the gospel to, did you get your ticket to heaven? And I'm not taking anything from heaven. I'm just trying to simply get people to realize that Jesus did not come just to get you a ticket to heaven. He came to give you a life. And that's what goes on to say. He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so it says more than just get us out of it, more than just getting us out of trouble, He got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong, and one man said yes to God and put many in the right. All the passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the, aggress with the aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. But grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah. In other words, the Messiah is bringing about God's new creation project to make all things new. God, the goal in Revelation chapter 21, he said, These, he said, Behold, I make all things new. He didn't say, I'm going to make all new things. He said, I'm going to make all things new. And then he says, Write these words down because they are true and they are faithful. God's project and God's, God's business is to redeem and restore. What was lost in the first Adam is restored in the last Adam. In other words, uh, you know, you've heard me say this before, when Adam had a garden and he uh, turned it into a graveyard, Jesus takes a graveyard, turns it into a garden. Adam has access to a tree of life and he chooses a tree of death. And Jesus chooses a tree of death, turns it into a tree of life. And everything he does in his redemptive work, he does it in a garden because he's about to renew and make all things new. That's what He came to do, is to make all things new and to bring us into this new life that He is offering and this new creation and this, this, this newness of life that is uh, what God is offering us. He's putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into a life, a life that goes on and on and on. Watch this incredible word, world without end. And so when you see that he's talking about a life that goes on and on, and I've said this again before in several of the programs, but many places where he talks about eternal life or uh, everlasting life and uh, uh, terminologies like that, uh, the Greek word is aeonian or aeonius, and it's dealing with an age. And one of the first times I ever heard anybody ever comment on anything other than myself concerning this was a, uh, uh, a theologian by the name of N.T. Wright, who I've read some of his material. And uh, N.T. Wright translated these words where Jesus said that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, that literally could be translated the life of the coming age. Now, I believe that eternal life includes going to heaven when you die, but eternal life does not begin when you die and go to heaven. The uh, eternal life begins the moment you receive regeneration or the moment you receive salvation, the moment you are born again, you are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, and you just by new birth entered God's new world. You became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus came to announce, and I'm going to talk about this probably more and more, but as Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God and repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He was the Messiah and the King that everyone was now looking for. And He came to bring about a kingdom that was not like David's kingdom in the sense of it overthrowing the Roman empires. It was a kingdom that was not of this world, but a kingdom that was for this world. He says to, I believe it was Caiaphas, if my kingdom, it was either Caiaphas or Pilate, I get mixed up a little bit on that, but when he says to him, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. And so he was talking about, I'm not coming with military power. I'm coming with the power of the Holy Spirit to establish the government of Holy Spirit in the life of people all over this planet until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And He came to give us His life. And so even where there are many times questions that are asked by, uh, I remember especially the story of the Samaritan when he says to uh, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't say, what must I do to go to heaven? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, that could be translated, what must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Well, the coming age, as you've heard me teach in prior segments, was the new covenant age that was living life in the context of a father-son relationship and living out of Holy Spirit and living out of relationship rather than living out of rules and, and regulations and um, small print, as you see here even in Romans 5. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance against this aggressive forgiveness we call grace. So when it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. We're sin about that's where grace will superabound. So the grace of God comes, and the grace of God doesn't just come to cover over our sins. Sometimes we think about grace, and I think we get it and we get it confused with mercy. But the truth of it is, is the grace of God teaches us, according to the book of Titus, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. So the grace of God is not only uh, uh, the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God, it is God giving to us His ability, His life, His Spirit, and when He does that, He gives us His life, and uh, this life that we have begins to raise us up above sin. So uh, again, when you see uh, in the Gospels Jesus teaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He's talking about the coming of the kingdom that they were expecting, and they were expecting the kingdom to come. Somehow, we have reduced and watered down the gospel of the kingdom to our ticket to heaven. And once again, I'm not doing away with heaven, but a lot of people have lived in the misery of religion that stole their lives to the point where that all they've got to look forward is one of these days I get to go to heaven after I've lived in misery. Jesus didn't say that's what He came. He, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. 
And so the abundant life should then become the light of the world that people say, I want a whole put together life like that one. And so this next chapter begins to deal with uh, following the whole concept of you are not in trouble anymore. One man did it wrong, got us into all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. That's incredibly good news. But more than just get us out of trouble, He got us into a life. And so we're going to talk about that life and why Christian behavior is important under the new covenant is because what happens is, is whenever we do certain things, our behavior brings what's happening in that world into this world, and it begins to be an ongoing uh, project of His kingdom come His will being done in the earth. And Jesus said it like this many times. He said, if I heal the sick and cast out devils, then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's not just about then you get to go to the kingdom. It's about then the kingdom has come to you. And somehow we're missing the point. Even as He taught the gospel of the kingdom throughout the gospels, as He taught the gospel of the kingdom, He was not talking about other world stuff. He was talking about this world stuff. And what got the apostles in trouble in the book of of Acts was that they begin to announce that there's another king in town. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And as they begin to announce that the promises that God had made to David concerning one that would sit on his throne, even as the uh, very birthing of the church begins in the book of Acts chapter 1, and two, that what you see is they start to announce that this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to the royal seed of David, that the kingdom of God was coming to Israel, and this was fulfilled in Messiah as He brought the kingdom to earth. And as uh, twelve apostles began to preach the gospel, they began to release the government of heaven in the earth, and the kingdom of God began to evade uh, both Jew and Gentile. I think it's incredible that under the Old Covenant, I'm, I'm probably jumping way ahead of myself here, but under the Old Covenant, uh, when Moses came out of Egypt, and he went up into Mount Sinai, it was 50 days after the Passover. In the New Testament, 50 days after the Passover, uh, the the apostles are in an upper room. After the the Passover, under Moses in the book of Exodus, 50 days later, uh, they're on the mountain, and God gives Moses the law. Moses comes down the mountain with the law. 3,000 people drop dead. In the New Testament, you can see Jesus coming up out of the waters of baptism, and He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. But when He comes down the mountain, He comes down not with laws. He comes down with the Beatitudes. He comes down with the constitution of the kingdom. He comes down in the power of the Spirit. And as you see Him fulfill Passover at the death of the cross, 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, uh, now we have 12 uh, apostles under the Old Covenant. God used 12 patriarchs and 12 tribes to establish the government of Israel, but the new government of Israel that God has established in the new covenant is through 12 apostles. And so I think those are incredible things. And in the New Testament, at the, at 50 days after, uh, after Passover, and they're in an upper room, the Holy Ghost is giving, and 3,000 people are added to the church. I've said that in many segments, but the point here is that under the Old Covenant, the letter kills in the New Covenant, the Spirit gives life. 
And so I'm running out of time here before too awful long here, so I better get in here and start even just reading this and unpacking it. So we go into chapter 6 then, and it starts out talking about not only did He get us out of trouble, not only did He get us into a life, He said, so what do we do? This is so powerful of a point. He said, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving. Now I think it's wonderful that grace has covered my sin. And I'm thankful for the forgiveness of sin that is a constant thing that is forever this aggressive forgiveness we call grace. But I don't want to just live under forgiveness constantly. I want to see the power of the Holy Spirit work in my life to produce in me the glorious life that God intended for us to live in. So he said, should we keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? Listen, he says, I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. We went under the water and we left the old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we were lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. And when we were raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in this new grace sovereign country. So I would say it like this, we have entered Graceland and Adam has left the building. That's powerful. But he's beginning to say, and I think these are things that, uh, that are powerful. I'm so glad Paul put these in here because the accusations that many times those of us who teach grace get is that you're giving people a license to sin. No, we're not giving people a license to sin. People have sinned without a license for a long time. Now, I do believe there's a lot of stuff that we preach is sin that's not even in the Bible. We preach a lot of American culture, and we call that, we decide uh, what, what sin is and what sin isn't based on our culture, or we pick and choose the parts of the law that fit our culture. But what I'm after is simply this, is that He's not simply giving us a bunch of rules. He's bringing us into a relationship where we moved out of who we were in Adam, and we moved into who we are in Christ. In other words, we became a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is new creation. Now, I'm probably going to start listening and develop a little bit more in the next segment. But he begins to talk about how we have moved out of the country where sin is sovereign, and we can't live in our old house there anymore. And he goes on to say uh, that uh, when we went, he talked about that's what happened at baptism. Now, I want to kind of build this a little bit because I think it's so powerful that uh, uh, you can see some principles here. When Jesus was baptized in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, and I have a book that I really, really, really worked. It's called From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. You need to get this book, and it's available by calling the number, going to our website, or going to Amazon to get this book. But this book will really expand even more on that than I'm able to here. I'm just after a principle. When Jesus went down into the waters of baptism, and John the Baptist baptized him, 
The Bible said that when Jesus came straightway up out of the water, that the Spirit of God descended on Him like a dove. Now that's very, very important. It descended on Him like a dove. The reason it did that that, that is so important is because... Uh, is because when, 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 as Jesus is emerging up out of the waters of baptism, it is a reminder to me of how God uh, called Noah. Let me, let me pull my notes up on this a little bit here. Uh, it reminded, reminded me of how God had called Noah, and He said, listen, the end of all flesh has now come before me. I want you to build an ark to the saving of your house. And so He said, you're going to make an ark of shittim wood, and you're going to pitch it within and without with pitch. And He gives him the dimensions. But here's what I'm after is anytime you create a vehicle out of an old world that was cursed into a new world, you're going to have to involve a tree. Now that tree in the New Testament is the cross. And I think it's interesting that the Hebrew word here, pitch it, thou shalt pitch it within and without, is the Hebrew word kephar. It is the, it is the word we translate atonement. So what we get in this ark called Christ by our new birth. I think it's interesting that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Noah's name means rest, and God was calling him to build an ark to the saving of his house. So grace, he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. God said, here's your vehicle out of an old world, dominated by sin and by the curse. And he said, you're going to get in this, and you're going to pitch it within and without. The same word that we use, kephar, pitch it, is Hebrew word, kephar, thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch, is talking about the word we translate is the word atonement from that. So what seals out the world and seals us in is the precious blood of Jesus. Uh, that ark, uh, uh, as the flood begins to abate and God begins to call them forth into the new world. Remember, they're leaving an old world dominated by sin. They're entering into a new world. He lets two birds fly out of the ark. One of them flies all the way through the Scriptures and lands in the book of Revelation where Babylon has become the hold of every foul spirit, the cage of every unclean and hateful bird, but the dove only has to fly to the book of Matthew where it finds Jesus in the river Jordan coming up out of the waters of baptism. And when the dove landed on Jesus, it was saying to John the Baptist, here's the new world. This is the beginning of the new creation. And Jesus would signal that through His resurrection, that He was the first begotten from the dead, a brand new federal head of a new species. And it is interesting to me that when the ark comes to rest, it lands on a mountain called Ararat, and the word Ararat means the curse has been reversed. And so the baptism of Jesus is a picture of leaving an old world. And in the context of Matthew, they were leaving the old world of sin-dominated legalism and law and the old world that was cursed. And God had now begun His new creation project of making all things new that He would do through Jesus Christ the Son. That's why he said one man did it wrong, got us in all this trouble with sin and death. Another man did it right and got us out of it. But we've entered the new country where grace is sovereign. We're out of time and we're going to pick this up and develop it further in the next segment, but please make sure you tune in next week at the same time. Listen, if you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry, we do need your help to be able to keep uh, this kind of teaching on the air. You can do that by going to our website. There's a place where you can give via PayPal, credit card, 
uh, you can call the number on the screen and someone will take your call, or you can simply write a letter and put a check in it to Lynn House Ministries and the address will come up on the screen. But do it today. We need your help. God bless you. Join us again next week at the same time as we continue to teach on Romans chapter 6. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.